This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Numbers. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Well, in episode nine, we were in chapters 17 and 18, and we had one final sign from God that Aaron's family was God's choice for the priesthood. And that was the test of the budding staff. Every tribe got a shot and Aaron's won. Not only did Aaron's staff bud, but it also produced flowers, fruit, and almonds. With God's choice for the priesthood secure, God outlined the priest's duties and how Israel was to provide for the priests in tithes and offerings. And guess what? Spoiler alert, we are still supposed to do the same thing today. Exactly. Chapter 19 follows the focus on the priests with ritual instruction for cleansing from the impurity of death. Now, why all of a sudden are we kind of feeling back like we're getting more ritual. Why such an emphasis on death right now? Well, here's what the commentaries think. It's probably because so many people had just died in chapter 16. The 250, Korah, the other two guys can't even remember their names. Um, And because death made anyone in contact with it unclean, it was a massive problem. Plus, remember, this whole generation has to die. So there's going to be a lot of people dying, which could then contaminate the tabernacle. Remember from Leviticus that holiness is characterized by life. And if you'll remember, even further back in Genesis, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life was the one they could eat from. It brought life. The other tree brought death and they ate from it. As long as Adam and Eve only ate from the tree of life, they would live in a state of holiness in the garden. Everything in the garden was pure. But with the fall came sin and death and the end to the garden. Death is opposed to divine holiness. The tabernacle is the holy dwelling place of God. And if anyone unclean came in contact with it, sudden death would result. Are you tracking with me? Does that kind of make sense? That was like a, whoo. The problem was, for now, how could people, great numbers of people, made unclean from caring for their deceased relatives, become clean if they could not go to the tabernacle and offer a purification offering without contaminating the tabernacle and the priests? So God creates another solution in a new cleansing ritual, one that is faster, more convenient, and less expensive for the end user. This is the red heifer ashes and the water of cleansing ritual, chapter 19. I'm going to start with the red heifer ashes. The purpose of this offering is to create a supply of red heifer ashes to be stored for use whenever they're needed. So it's not like you have to bring the bowl there and do the whole thing. These are like, pull them off the shelf. It's like ready to go. Like, you know, how you get your grocery store. You know how you get your protein powder in a little to-go packet when you're traveling? (laughs) That's what this is like. The ashes would be mixed with the water and become instant, an instant purification offering. It was also economical, sparing the grieving family from the burden of having to sacrifice an expensive bull or lamb or whatever. All right. Chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. 
tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish and that has never been under a yoke. Give it to Eliezer the priest. It is to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eliezer the priest is to take some of its blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. While he watches, the heifer is to be burned, its hide, flesh, blood, and intestines. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool and throw them into the burning heifer. After that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come to the camp, but he will be ceremonially unclean until evening. The man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community for use in water of cleansing. It is for purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean till evening. This will be a lasting ordinance for both the Israelites and for foreigners residing among them. Instructions are given to Moses and Aaron, but Eleazar is to execute the command. Eleazar was Aaron's oldest living son. God is making his succession plan for the priesthood very visible to the Israelites. He wants no future insurrection from the Levites or the tribes. As usual, the animal being sacrificed had to be perfect. Using the best animal in an offering was a faith builder for the offerer. They had to believe that if they gave up their finest in their herd, what was left would be enough for their future and sufficient to improve their remaining herd. For us, this does not seem difficult, but to the farmer or herder, giving up your biggest and best animal was painful. Now, there are several unusual things about this sacrifice. It was a heifer or a female cow, not a bull. In the past, they've all been bulls. The color of the heifer was to be red, the color of blood. It was to be slaughtered outside the camp, not at the altar in the tabernacle as usual. The blood of the heifer was not to be sprinkled on the altar, but instead toward the tabernacle because they were located outside the tent of meeting. The remaining blood was to be burned within the animal. No other offering has blood burned with it. And the heifer was to be burned intact instead of the parts being separated as in other offerings described in Leviticus 4. You can check out our season three chart in the show notes to look at the different offerings. The fire that it was burned in was augmented by the addition of cedar, hyssop, and scarlet wool. Lastly, the priest is present, but there is no identification of sin or or act of atonement in the process of offering and burning. So it's kind of like they're doing all this ahead of time. It's not associated with anything yet. Now, the ashes in the sacrifice that resulted from the fire are the focus of this offering. The priest and the worker are both made unclean from performing the ritual. And because of that, a, and, and they're unclean because, again, there's blood involved. It's still in the heifer. And because of that, that a third man must gather the ashes, which are holy, but kept outside of the camp, even though they were holy. So we don't know why they're kept outside of the camp because they're holy, but they are. And by touching the holy ashes, the third man who started clean becomes unclean. Because, again, 
the ashes represent the blood. So it's funny. It's going to be used to make clean those who are unclean, those who have touched death, but those who are clean who touch it become unclean. Is this only a temporary solution because of the 250 who died, or is this like going to become no, the standard is, going forward? This is going to be their express um, solution to death but going forward. But it just forward. seems like it's removing the sacrifice that it takes to become clean. Like it would be a deterrent to have to go well, through more. The, the easier you make it, it feels like it's not going to, people aren't going to care as much about becoming unclean. Well, but remember, this this is impurity because of a, a natural thing, like menstruation was when we talked about mm-hmm. that. So this wasn't an atonement for sin, oh. which they yes, can't do anything about. Right. It's you've got thing. it. Okay, you've got, got to it. come. You've got to come bring your expensive bull for that one, or or whatever you can afford. In this case, this was a natural thing. They just needed to be cleansed from touching that death because it it polluted the camp and it polluted the tabernacle. Got it. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about when to apply the ashes and the cleansing water. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean. Their uncleanliness remains on them. This is the law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days, and every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed by the sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or grave will be unclean for seven days. Contact with death was a regular reminder of life and death creation and the fall, sin and forgiveness, God's perfect holiness, and man's unholiness. God's desire was to dwell among his people, even though they lived outside of the perfectly clean and holy garden. For that blessing, the people had the responsibility to obey his commands. But this command was tough, and death was common. Caring for deceased loved ones was important to families. The provision of the ashes and water were a godsend. They could mourn without fear of being unclean and unable to go near the tabernacle. Now they had a process to become clean. That being said, you would, as an Israelite, think twice about who actually needed to be involved in caring for the dead in order to minimize the number of people being rendered unclean. Like, you know, you'd, you'd kind of say, okay, two of us are going to handle this and the rest of you Maybe stay the back. <laughs> teenagers don't need to come. Yeah, exactly. They don't need to come. Now, in the New Testament, several of the disciples demonstrate their love for Christ through the care of his body after his death. Jewish tradition, this was a big deal too, because again, the people who chose to do this were very high and important people. But also, it's because of what day it was that it was such a big deal. Jewish tradition holds that not only did Jesus die on a Friday, Which the day of the preparation. Start of the Sabbath, right? Correct. It's the start. Well, it's the day you prepare for the Sabbath the next day because you can't sundown. do any work. Um, but it was also the day, the day he died was also mar- marked the beginning of what would be the Passover and the seven day feast of unleavened bread that came after that. So we talked about this. Oh, I can't remember how many chapters 
ago how important the celebrating the Passover was. Remember, there was a makeup Passover even. So Mm -hmm. it was a big deal to miss. And as I'm about to read, these men who chose to take care of Jesus' body were very prominent men. People would have probably asked them, why are you missing the Passover? (laughs) You know, because it was so noticeable. Um, To celebrate those ceremonies was a commandment that was important. And you had to be clean to celebrate the, the ceremonies. Taking care of Jesus' body would have made them unclean. And they were therefore excluding themselves. In John, all the gospels talk about this, but I'm going to read from John 9, 19.38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now in Mark 15, we also learn that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, were also there. Sweet story when you think of they had these two men had done every meeting with Jesus in secret, like one at night and one specifically because he was afraid of Jewish leaders. And yet at Jesus's death, they're bold enough to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus's body and then miss the Passover for which they would be asked. So it's almost like they would be exposed anyway because they they weren't there. it's, It's like they were so in love with Jesus at this point that they were willing to publicly risk what they were trying to avoid being censured for before because they were ready to say, I'm a believer. Okay, next, how to apply the red heifer ashes and the cleansing water. Verse 17, for the unclean person put some ashes from the burned purification offering into a jar and pour fresh water over them. Then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or anyone who has been killed or anyone who has died a natural death. The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean on the third and seventh days. And on the seventh day, he is to purify them. Those who are being cleansed must wash their clothes and bathe with water. And that evening they will be clean. But if those who are unclean do not purify themselves, they must be cut off from the community because they have defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them, and they are unclean. This is a lasting ordinance for them. The man who sprinkles the water of cleansing must also wash his clothes, and anyone who touches the water of cleansing will be unclean till evening. Anything that an unclean person touches becomes unclean, and anyone who touches it becomes unclean till evening. There's no charge... Free for all ashes are mixed with water and the mixture is sprinkled on the tent where the person had died and on the people with a hyssop branch on the third and seventh day. Then the people bathe and all is good. They're clean. Except if you were the one administering the ceremony, you are now unclean, but all you have to do is bathe and all is good for you too. This is the only offering that has blood in it, which makes it very symbolic. The symbolism 
points back in history to the usage of hyssop to smear blood over the doorposts in the first Passover in Egypt. And the symbolism points forward because the red heifer with the blood mixture is mixed with cleansing or living water. So you have symbolism of the future salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is also the provision of living water. Blood and water, the liquids of life, are wrapped up in this ritual that is supposed to cleanse them from death. The Apostle Paul relates the cleansing of the ashes of the red heifer to the cleansing of the blood of Christ in Hebrews 9.13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Blood is the most potent cleansing and sanctifying agent in the Bible. The sprinkling of it on the altars in the tabernacle were detailed throughout Leviticus. The fact that this heifer had to be read was a visual representing the reality of life and death that is so tentatively tied to every drop of blood in our bodies. Such ceremonies as the red heifer ceremony, like our ceremonies, think of baptism ceremonies or communion, are a visual reminder expressing the deepest truths about life as people watch them. I wonder how common it was to have a red heifer versus a black or brown one. I don't know, but I thought the cool thing was the the ashes of the red heifer would cover lots of deaths. Like the community maybe, I, they don't say like if the whole community gave a red heifer or if every tribe or like, okay, who's given the red heifer now? And how many, how many deaths did it cover? Who had to be the cover? one to sacrifice it out of their own but flock. But it, it did it did cover the community, you know, it covered a lot of deaths. So it was kept in some kind of container outside the tabernacle. I don't know who kept it or what. Yeah. And that foreshadowing of Jesus's death is really yes. fascinating right there. And That's just a how they, for they sure. took the blood, the, the blood ashes, we'll call them, of the heifer and mixed it with fresh water, which translated can be living water, which then we see over and over in the New Testament. In John, it was, gosh, where it was John 4 and 7, both talk about the living water. And it's like taking both those things, blood and water, which are so symbolic about our life in Christ. And now that we know about this type of offering, you'll never read the New Testament the same again. No, I won't. I really won't. Okay, moving on to chapter 20. This chapter is a sad one for Moses because bookended between the deaths of his only two siblings in this chapter is the story of the greatest mistake of this otherwise faithful life of Moses. It's also the beginning of the final journey from Kadesh to the border of Canaan, near the end of the 38-year period of wandering in the wilderness. We're going to start with the death of Miriam. His sister, right? Correct. Chapter 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh 
There, Miriam died and was buried. The exact timing of Miriam's death is uncertain. It is probable that this is the first month after 38 years of wandering after the first trip to Kadesh. So they have a trip to Kadesh, then they wander for 38 years, now they're back at Kadesh. We don't know the exact timing of many of these events because most of the people's wandering in the wilderness is not recorded. What we have is a highlight reel of the Israelites' time in the wilderness. It's the Instagram feed of the exactly. Israelites. Exactly. And you know that feed, sometimes it's just not a time order. You know, it's like everybody's stuff all mixed together. Now, the fact that we only have the highlight reel could be deliberate on Moses's part, as if to say that the time of wandering did not really count in the history of salvation because it was a wasted time. It is often thought that the Israelites were constantly moving in the desert of Sinai during the 38 years, but Deuteronomy 146 indicates that they stayed at Kadesh many, many days. Miriam herself, let's talk about her. She was bold and brave, starting even at the age of 12. She was a prophetess and an amazing leader for the Lord. It is said that after challenging Moses' authority a few chapters back, she kind of disappears from the story. It may be that she never recovered the position of trust that she had had prior to that. Or perhaps she humbly decided to step back, unsure of herself. We just don't know. But her death marks the beginning of the end of this generation's leadership. And you can't just end on a really happy note, though, with Miriam, because she really was a great woman. You can't help compare Miriam, a brave woman who saved her baby brother so that he could save the Israelites and lead them to the promised land, to another brave Miriam, a namesake whose name we pronounce Mary, who would give birth to a baby. As opposed to Miriam, who saved her baby brother. So that he could save the world. Where Miriam saved him so he could save the Israelites. And fulfill God's plan through the promised one. As opposed to Moses doing it for the promised land. Correct. All right. This next section is deja vu. We have more water problems. Verse two, now there was no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain, no figs, no grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes. It will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Here we go again. Different time. Same exact problem. This happened before in Exodus 17 at a place also called Meribah. Lack of water led to opposition, which led to grumbling, which was rebellious toward God. Now, Moses and Aaron react typically by falling face down. This is not the first time they've done that. They're falling face down in front of the Lord, praying for intercession from God's judgment because the people are being ungrateful and rebellious. But this time, God does not get angry. He simply provides instructions for his provision of water. And they don't get angry either. They just 
literally go straight to praying. Well, that's what it looks like, but you better read. Oh, well then, I'll read verse 9. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I gave them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. I titled this episode, Even the Faithful Can Fall, because that's what happens here. Moses makes a mistake. Moses takes the staff just as God commanded. And Moses gathers the people just as God commanded. And then something must have happened as he looked out over the ungrateful crowd. Something must have struck his own heart and split it open. Because from somewhere deep within came 38 years worth of frustration. And it rushed to the top of his upraised arm and came crashing down onto that rock. Not just once but twice. Mission accomplished Moses's way. He struck the rock rather than spoke to it. The striking wasn't a random idea. The first time that people wanted water back in Exodus, God told him to strike the rock. So this time he struck it twice. It's like in his head, he was thinking that this was such an unnecessary repeat of the first time that he struck the rock like the first time instead of speaking, and he struck it twice as if to emphasize to the Israelites how redundant this whole rebellion was, how redundant this whole process of complaining and not trusting that God would provide. Such a small difference. He struck it twice instead of speaking to the rock. But it was different enough because God sees the heart. And Moses's heart was giving vent to what he wanted to do, not what God wanted him to do. Moses did not trust that God's way to provide for the people was enough. Moses probably wanted God to be angry with them as he clearly was. He called them rebels and took his frustration out on the rock. Moses probably wanted the the Israelites to be punished for their opposition. So we really don't know. When he fell face down on the Lord and we think he's interceding, he may have been angry. He may have just been like, here we go again. I'm on the floor eating dust because these dumb Israels are repeating the exact same mistake they made. Can we blame him for venting? No, Poor Moses. His sister had just died, marking the beginning of an end to an era, his era. He was probably feeling the pressure of old age. He was running out of time. And yet nothing in the behavior of these people had changed in 40 years. He was back at another place called Meribah, a word that means place of strife in the exact same situation as he was after they left Exodus. He probably felt like his entire life's work had amounted to nothing. The people were still 
unfaithfully whining and wishing they had stayed in Egypt. Moses had a moment, and both he and Aaron, who was listed as taking part, would heartbreakingly finish their life forever on the edge of the promised land because of this one fragile, very human moment. The consequence seemed so harsh for Moses, a man that had been so faithful. And yet later in Deuteronomy and in 1 Corinthians, we read that the rock is revealed to be symbolic of Christ and the living water he provides. In 1 Corinthians 10.3, it says, They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So in effect, Moses was lashing out at God's provision for salvation, for living water, this water that they so desperately needed in the desert. Poor Moses. Isn't that the way it always is? Our mistakes have consequences far beyond anything we could ever imagine. Psalm 106 sums it up like this. By the waters of Meribah, they anchored the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. For they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. I think it speaks to one more thing Just one more layer here. Uh In addition to um, the way that Moses was angry, I think that you mentioned the heart. There's another heart issue going on. He took, it's not enough to do what God tells you to do, because he certainly did what God told him to do. He added to it. But then what he didn't do was he didn't give God the glory for it. He took the glory himself. He said, do I have to come out here and do this again? Exactly. And I think that was the moment that, required the consequence because it spoke to him thinking that he was above God. And that is the worst sin. It's idolatry. Well, that's, and that's exactly what Moses said. He, I mean, what God said to Moses said, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israelites. He didn't honor God in the way he did it. He did it out of anger and vengeance. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's never us. It's God who did the act. So give him the glory every time. Exactly. I can relate to Moses because I tend to let things build up and then it all spills invariably at the wrong time and with and, and in the wrong way, my way, not God's. And while I really feel for Moses, for surely he deserved to be able to see the land, it is comforting to me to know that even the faithful can fall and that the fallen faithful can still be used to fulfill God's promises. God didn't stop using Moses in this moment. There was a consequence, but we're going to see in Moses' death, God still honors him. Well, this next section takes us in another direction. It's, it's about Edom denying Israel's passage. Now, we know this name from way back in season one. Edom is the territory settled by Esau. Esau and Jacob were twins, and Jacob was the younger, cleverer of the two. He stole the birth the birthright from Esau in Genesis. So while the two nations are related, Jacob's Israel and Esau, Edom, they are not on friendly terms. We will read about this nation again further along in the Old Testament. King David is going to conquer the Edomites. 
fulfilling God's promise issued when Jacob and Esau were born in Genesis. And that promise was that the older twin would serve the younger. Verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, saying, This is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come on us. Our ancestors went down into Egypt, and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our ancestors, but we cried out to the Lord. He heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, You may not pass through there. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, We will go along the main road, and if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again, they answered, You may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. So Moses writes this really nice formal letter, kind of laying out their history and what they promised to do. And Edom still refuses and nobody really knows why, except people kind of, uh, the commentaries kind of say that it's probably because Edom was not a... uh, a very fruitful land. It was very arid and they didn't have a lot of water and supplies to begin with. And they knew from probably word of mouth how big these people were and they would literally let just just like suck out all their resources. And so (laughs) that's probably why they said no. Deuteronomy places this encounter as occurring at the end of the wandering after a long time at Kadesh and a long time wandering in, in and around the hill country of Seir. Israel turns away from their chosen route to go through Edom um, for two reasons instead of fighting them. They are a brother nation, so they don't want to fight them. It's it's not what God has called them to do because Edom also is, second reason, not a part of Canaan and therefore not in the promised land, and that's who they are really setting out to fight. So they begin this journey around Edom. Now, we began this chapter with the death of Miriam, and we're going to end this chapter with another death, the death of Aaron. Verse 22, the whole Israelite community sent set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Eden, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I gave the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eliezer and take them up to Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer, for Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up to Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer went, came down from the mountain, and when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, all the Israelites mourned him 30 days. The camp moves to the northeast of Kadesh at Mount Hor, uh, which may be Jabal Madura. And we're going to have a map of the route to the plains of Moab. That's the route we're on in the show notes that you can check out if you want to see where they went. The reason for Aaron's death is made painfully clear. It's because of what happened at Meribah. But God was kind in the process and dignity of his impending death. Aaron was able to transfer his authority to his son, with Moses at his side to take part in the first ever transfer of high priests, 
while all of Israel watched. How sweet this must have been for this father and uncle, brothers in life and in mission, to pass the future of the nations to this son and nephew. The three men ascended the mountain, but only two descended. It is assumed that Aaron was buried there at the top, looking out at the promised land to the northwest. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Aaron dies prematurely, never seeing the promised land. Yet his death is not in disgrace as the others of his generation. God called Aaron up to the mountain to receive him himself. Even in the humiliation of his death, God honored Aaron. Aaron was gathered to his people, a phrase used to describe the death of a righteous man. And Aaron was a righteous man. And now we are left with just one. Moses is left to launch the new generation from the wilderness to the promised land all by himself. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.